Hi, this is John Mulder, Executive Director of the Trillium Institute, along with Jason Beckrow, welcoming you to Palliative Matters. We are palliative doctors who treat patients and families who are dealing with difficult medical circumstances. We'd like to share what we've learned along this journey. Good morning, Jay. What's on your mind today? Good morning, John. You know, John, uh, recently it was National Healthcare Decisions Day, and it's uh, Advanced Care Planning Month. And so the concept of advanced care planning has been on my mind. Would you like to talk about that today? I think that'd be great. It's, a, it's always a topic that seems to bubble up in a lot of conversations, and certainly that's an active part of the agenda of folks that are getting older, those that are living in facilities, and even a lot of doctor's offices are making that an important part of the conversations that they're having with their patients, sometimes just preemptively before they have anything going on, but quite frequently when we've got uh, folks that have been diagnosed with conditions that are going to impact their lives over a, a number of years. And so I think that helping to clarify what that means would be of value to our listeners. So uh, yeah, that's a great idea. So I guess, I, I guess I'd start by saying when you approach that topic with your patients mm -hmm. and you realize, boy, we need, to, we need to be thinking about the future, how do you frame that conversation to begin with? And how do you let them know that we're going to have this conversation about advanced care planning? Yeah, great question. And for me, it always begins and ends and is universally surrounded around the concept of autonomy. What would the patient choose for themselves if they had capacity to make those choices? Understanding that at times they may or may not have that capacity, and how can we then be proactive in helping them make those choices? As you know, oftentimes these decision-making processes begin once a significant medical event has occurred, maybe a terminal cancer diagnosis or just an advanced cancer diagnosis, where now people are starting to think very explicitly, very um, uh, directly about their own mortality and the what ifs. A lot of times uh, patients will, will meet in the office, we're discussing a, a new diagnosis. Again, we'll, for the purposes of our conversation now, talk about an advanced cancer or metastatic cancer diagnosis. And the patient will say, doc, you know, is it time to get my affairs in order? That's kind of a code word for, you know, amongst other things, advanced care planning. And so again, with the concept of autonomy, how can we help preserve the patient's autonomy? We'll begin uh, this discussion. I think that it's important to consider not only when we've kind of crossed a bridge into the reality of our mortality, but if you look at the circumstances that kind of catch the public headlines, mm -hmm. uh, like Terry Schiavo and, and the distant past, Karen Ann Quinlan, and those sorts of things where young Absolutely. people unexpectedly find themselves in these states of medical limbo. We use terms like comatose or persistent vegetative state and other sorts of terminology that just indicates that someone is in a state of non-communication, of non-responsiveness, and it's going to persist. And is this really how someone wants to live? And I think that it emphasizes the importance of having the conversations proactively, preemptively, even before then. Absolutely. That's exactly where I wanted to go next, John. Oftentimes, advanced illness, terminal illness is what prompts the conversation for those who are experiencing those diagnoses. However, as we've talked about many times in this podcast, those diagnoses don't just affect a single individual, right? They affect everyone who loves and cares for that individual. 
And along those same lines, if we're starting to discuss what oftentimes are referred to in advanced care planning circles as uh, last steps for patients with advanced diagnoses, it is also an incredible opportunity to start talking about first steps with those loved ones who are younger, not experiencing these diagnoses, but to start to get them thinking about the what-ifs in their lives, as you said, for unexpected circumstances. And most importantly, who would be, or who would be the individual, or who would be the group of people you would want answering those questions for you, and to start to begin conversations with those trusted decision makers on things that would be acceptable and things that would not be. I think that's great. And I think the other thing is that some of the misconceptions that I think we want to dispel in our time together today mm -hmm. is that a lot of folks focus on this process as signing a document. And Correct. that document is then embedded within a medical record. And that now is the law. And I think it's important to understand that the real essence of this is the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's allowing you as a patient and your family to really have a good sense as to what is meaningful and important and sacred to you so that they're in a position to help to make decisions when it comes time that you no longer can make them for yourself. And when we talk about advanced care planning, that's really what we're talking about. It's saying, you know what, this is going to happen. It's not an if. Most folks, if you talk to them, they want a sudden end of their life. It's going to be some sort of a tragic something or a medical event. They die in their sleep and no one saw it coming. But the reality is that 90% or more of us will have a predictable end of life experience. We know it's coming. And what do we want that to look like? How do we want that to feel? Who do we want around? What are our fears regarding that? Mm -hmm. And that then allows us to say, well, here's, here's what's important to me. And you share that with your family and you can memorialize it in a document, but, but that can be modified over the years, depending upon how your perspectives change, mm -hmm. what your diagnoses might be that enter into the picture. So I think that that's an important consideration as well. Absolutely. And again, I just think it's very important for us as healthcare professionals to be recognizing the value of helping patients start to begin those discussions. If need be, again, in our offices, routinely we'll have patients coming to us with advanced illness. But again, leveraging that to get family members to thinking about their own lives, to have them start thinking about, again, what are their values so that they can understand them personally. And then to start those discussions with family or friends or you know the people, again, that you would trust to make those decisions. Because again, if simply having those discussions openly with your uh, trusted decision makers and then identifying that trusted decision maker would really help, it helps a lot of parties. Most importantly, if something were to happen to me, the last thing I'd want to do is burden my spouse or my children with them trying to guess what would dad want. So we talk openly about that so that when and if, if that ever came to be, they wouldn't have to guess. Uh, they know what we've discussed, and now they get to substitute my judgment for me based on their understanding of that. It's a process. And to your point, John, it's not a one-time, doesn't need to be a singular document that is signed, sealed, put in a vault, and then you dust it off at the appropriate time. It can be much more than that. So this is, this is all very important. And let's get more 
granular, if you will. And mm -hmm. we've kind of talked some generalities about kind of conceptually what it is, but how do you specifically start the conversation with a patient? And what kinds of questions do you ask them that would result in our being able for them and ourselves as treating physicians, as well as family members that are going to be around to say, ah, okay, I get it. Because we've talked in general about what's important, but how do, what does that mean and how does that translate into this kind of a conversation? Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. I try to break it down into a couple of parts. First, the concept of surrogate decision makers. And then once that's established to try to go into as many specifics as is possible of potential healthcare outcomes. And keep in mind, the more a patient has advanced illness or is facing specific diagnoses, oftentimes the most specific we can get. But again, the whole time, it's really about identifying who are those individuals that you would want as your surrogate decision maker, and then the encouragement to start having the conversations of which I'll start to plant seeds for them to have. So again, if I'm wearing my hat as a medical oncologist and a patient comes in, has advanced illness, we're going to be talking about how do we treat the disease as fully as possible? And generally, how do we get to a state of cure? Understanding that sometimes that doesn't happen. And if so, what are the various forks in the road or limitations uh, that would be acceptable to the patient? But that is a very tangible opportunity to start discussing if something were to happen, you were not able to make decisions for yourself, who would you trust to make those decisions for you? So again, usually that's part A of the process is identifying those parties. And then I'll go into a very, you know, as objective detail as possible. So we'll start talking with code status. If something were to happen and you were to stop breathing or your heart were to stop, the normal procedure would be, and then I would explain what a code blue looks like and have them think about that and to start to process that. And some patients will know right away, doc, no, 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 no. Under no circumstances do I want that. Some common language, docs, no heroics, right? I want to give uh, this cancer treatment an honest effort, but if I don't want to be on machines, I don't want to be a vegetable, I don't want heroics, things such as that. That's language that will be given generally that I'll start to ask most specifically. So again, some patients will identify right out of the gates that they do not want to be on a mechanical ventilator. If their heart was to stop, they'll take that as a sign that they've peacefully come to the end of their lives. They want to pass peacefully. But as you also know, for most of us, that's not a decision that we can make today based on our current circumstances. Today, as a middle-aged man, if I were to have an acute cardiac event, I'd want you to do everything you can to bring me back from that. If that cardiac event is in the face of a metastatic cancer diagnosis or other comorbidities at a different point in my life, I may choose to answer that very differently. I may say, bring me back initially, but after 24, 48, 72 hours, it's apparent that my brain function is severely compromised or it's unlikely I'll come off the ventilator you know, we can have discussions now, you know, how long would be long enough to give a trial of life support? How long would be a reasonable trial of life support? So again, with advanced illness, you can usually talk more specific, 
But when we're talking to healthy people, it's usually pretty dramatic and thankfully unlikely scenarios, right? If I'm in a car accident and these things happen and I'm sustained on machines only for more than a week, let me go. That's something that a lot of folks can say today in good health. But as you know, there's so much nuance. And why it's so important to talk about generalities and again, trusted circuit decision makers. So, so context matters. And, and expected outcomes matter. Mm-hmm. And I think that what you've outlined is very practical and is very sensible. So yeah, I mean, if either of us uh, were to go down right now, even though I have in document form saying, no, I would not want to be resuscitated. However, that assumes that I've got a terminal issue going on and that in and of itself cannot be remedied. So if I'm my heart is stopping because I'm at the end of my life, then yeah, that's exactly what I want, or in this case, don't want to happen. Mm -hmm. But if the expected outcome of an intervention is that we can restore life to our pre-morbid condition, that's what we want. I think that the opportunity for seeing how context matters and how fluid this can be was exemplified in a patient that I saw a number of years ago. I was working in an ALS clinic and he came in very early in the course of his uh, diagnosis. And I think many listeners will be familiar with ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known mm-hmm. as Lou Gehrig's disease. And it's a progressive, universally fatal disease in which you lose the muscular control of your body. It eventually not only leaves you essentially completely paralyzed, but it ultimately robs you of your ability to swallow, to speak, to breathe. And so it's, uh, in, in many circumstances, a very nasty disease. There's a lot that we can do to help to sustain life in the course of that illness. And this one gentleman had a foot drop, and that's what he was coming to the clinic for. And I remember as I was walking him back, and he was using a cane, walking slowly because that foot was not cooperating. We walked past another patient who was in an electric wheelchair. Her gaze was fixed. She really was unemotional. I didn't have the facial muscles to be able to express any emotion. She had a breathing apparatus strapped to the back of the chair that was breathing for her. She had a tube that was providing nutritional support to her. And she had a computer screen in front. And even though she was emotionless, she could use her eyes to trigger letters and phrases to essentially do some rudimentary conversation with her family. And he looked at me and he said, don't ever let me get like that. Mm -hmm. And I said, I understand. You're in control here. You get to make the decisions. My job will be to let you know what options exist along the way. He seemed satisfied with that. A few weeks later, he came in. Uh, now a cane was not working, and it was very difficult for him to manage with a walker. And you could tell that he was struggling with his ambulation. And I said, you know, we've got uh, an electric wheelchair in the closet here that we can lend you to see if you might like that option. You might find that... Um, uh, that it's uh, that it that helps you with your uh, mobility. Don't want it? You don't have to use it. I know that you were not interested in engaging a lot of technology, but this is something to consider. He came back a couple weeks later, just thrilled. He was just kind of zipping back and forth and knocking people over, and I thought this was the coolest thing in the world. And so, a couple a couple of months later, we noticed he was losing significant weight, and it was clear that his swallowing was now compromised. He was not taking in enough nutrients to be able to sustain him for very long. So we had a heart-to-heart talk. I said, you know, here's, here's the deal. 
Uh, if we don't institute some aspect of nutritional support, you just have a few weeks left, maybe a couple of months, but not long. I said, we can kind of stave that off by uh, putting a tube in and allowing some nutrients to come in. And he thought about it and said, you know, I, this is not the life that I'd expected, but you know, I'm surrounded by people I love, I'm comfortable, um, and I'm not ready to go yet. So yeah, let's do that. Mm-hmm. We did, and his weight stabilized. Um, it was, again, everything is measured in a number of weeks or months, but he came back another time and says, I'm just so more, much more fatigued than I had been before. And our testing revealed that his oxygen was dropping fairly low at night when he was sleeping. And I said, we do have this apparatus. It's not breathing for you. It's just helping to support your breathing. If you'd like to try it, you can. And if you don't like it, you don't have to use it. Don't have to try it if you don't want. But I think it might help what you're concerned about with, you know, energy and alertness and things of that sort. And he came back a week or two later and says, can I use this during the day too? And I said, of course. So you can see where this is going. Within a, a year, year and a half, he now had an electric wheelchair, had a breathing apparatus and was receiving tube feeds, which is exactly where he said he didn't want to be. But as he was able to adapt to his new reality, mm-hmm. he was able to say, well, wait a minute, I can redefine for me what is an important quality that I would like to continue to maintain. And when his communication began to falter, he opted not to try the computerized devices. He, he tried it and just wasn't working for him. So he, he really opted to say, at the moment in time when I no longer can communicate effectively with my family, that for me is my line in the sand. Mm-hmm. It was very clear. We worked out a communication scheme that would allow us to know when he was at that point. Mm-hmm. And everybody was on board, everybody agreed. And when that came, he simply stopped his tube feeds and he stopped his breathing support. And he had a meaningful, peaceful death, a lot longer than he would have had he chosen none of those things. So I just, I think that the, the context matters, adaptability matters. And what was most important is that at every step along the way, he was able to make the determination of what was important to him. And we were able to develop the, the support system around him to make sure that that was honored. Great example there, John. Again, with autonomy just woven all the way through that, right? This gentleman was able to define what is quality of life for him. And at various points of this ALS journey, that definition changed. On day one, he saw things that given his, let's say healthier context, would, would seem to be a poor quality of life. But as time goes on, he's able to redefine uh, what those values are. He's given the opportunity to define that and keep his autonomy. When you say all parties were on board, who was near and dear to this patient and, and with him at the end? I'm assuming he's surrounded by love. Family. Ones. Family. Yeah, it was family. So think also now of the incredible relief of burden that this patient, the gift this patient was able to give uh, their family simply by defining what quality of life is for them and what those, where those lines exist for them. A lot of times patients will come in, beautiful, beautiful patients dealing with life's just incredible, incredible challenges, including their own impending death, their own mortality. And yet say, you know, doc, I don't want to be a burden to my family. 
And by doing this gift here of simply defining what is quality of life and then clearly expressing as much as possible to our family and loved ones what would be acceptable and would not be, that is a great gift. It relieves them of the burden of having to make sometimes some tough choices that if they don't know the answers can carry incredible, incredible guilt. And if I may, John, I may tell another story just to kind of balance the, the one you just uh, uh, told. Again, this patient with ALS gave his family and loved ones a great gift. Contrast that to, uh, then this is somewhat personal. I'll never forget my grandfather basically died of COPD in the uh, mid 1990s. And the reason he died is because he smoked a couple packs of camels for most of his life, I think, starting when he was a teenager. He and my grandmother never had these conversations. He went into respiratory failure, was on a ventilator for a number of days. My grandmother was then left to kind of make the decision of, you know, if grandpa's heart stopped, should he be coded or not? At the time, this is before I even went to medical school. Uh, I have an aunt who's a nurse. Uh, my uncle and my mother were helping my mom make uh, grandma make that decision and ultimately decided if grandpa's heart stops, we're going to let him go. I think a very reasonable thing considering the circumstances. My grandmother, for the rest of her life, carried the guilt and I feel a sense of shame that she, by making that decision, quote, killed my grandfather. She never gave herself the credit for it was those two to three packs of camels mm -hmm. for 60, 70 years that killed grandpa. It was because she was forced to make that decision. And again, I want to contrast the gift that your patient gave his family to the burden that families can carry if these conversations don't occur. And maybe I'm going to now speak to the listener, to the medical professional, to take on that shared responsibility. These are not easy conversations to have, but they're important. And when we do, think of the gift we can give that next grandmother who's forced with, should I or should I not have my husband of 50 plus years undergo a code blue or not? If we have that conversation at two in the afternoon on a Tuesday, then we don't have to have that with grandma and probably our medical resident in the ICU at two in the morning on a Saturday. Does that make right. sense, John? Well, this is makes, all about yeah. being proactive. It's about being proactive. It's about honesty. I think it's about, and, and I think that a lot of physicians still to this day feel that somehow the acknowledgement that their patient is going to die is equivalent to failure on their part. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be an attitudinal change. I also wanted to, uh, to get back to the issue of burden. You're correct. My patient gave his family a gift by helping to define for himself what was going on. You also had mentioned the term being a burden, and a lot of times patients decision-making is based on this arbitrary, in most cases, false assumption that if I am somehow debilitated, I'm going to be a burden to my family. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, and that can sometimes adversely impact their decision-making, what they decide to do or decide not to do. And it sort of supersedes, again, what is sacred and important to them. And I very, very commonly, in, in many circumstances, they're, they don't want to be a burden to their kids or their spouse. And that really is where, the, uh, uh, where they feel that that is, is going to be. Absolutely. And I just say, you know, 
I think you did a pretty good job raising fill in the blank, you know, your son, your daughter, raising your husband, you did a nice job with that, to be able to allow them to make adult decisions for themselves. They get to decide what's burdensome or not. And in many cases, what you perceive as burden for them would be an act of service and an act of love. And so let's not take that away from them, their opportunity to be able to serve you in your time of need, much as you have served them in their times of need throughout their lives. So, yeah. so let's work beyond that issue of burden and allow people to really focus on in this moment, in your moment of need to provide the resources based on, again, what's important to you, then burden doesn't even have to enter into the conversation. Absolutely. We have the power as medical professionals to turn that burden into a loving opportunity. And if I'm not mistaken, John, I think we've just come up with another topic for a future podcast. <laughs> I love it. I love yes. it. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we should go ahead and uh, kind of wrap this up. I think that the conversation will bleed itself into other conversations that we have. But this has been a good introduction, uh, just to understanding these concepts of advanced planning and what we need to consider. And again, just to reinforce what you said, these conversations, I think the most important thing is that you as an individual, for the listeners now, doesn't matter if you're on the medical or non-medical side of our audience, have identified someone who you know would be able to speak to your values when you no longer can. Not an if, but when you no longer can, that there is someone who can step up and saying, this is what John would want. This is what Jay would want. And I'm confident because we've had these conversations from time to time about what's important to us. And if you do nothing more than that, then that's a great start. And then have these conversations with your loved ones, those that are going to make decisions for you at some point down the road. So they understand the context under which they can help to make decisions and feel very confident that this is a decision that you would have made. And then if you can memorialize that in a document, that's fine, but that's always subject to change. And at the end of the day, we just want to make sure that when your moment comes, that you'll be looking at the reality of death or the reality of some element of debility, that your values and what's important to you continues to live on. Always a pleasure, John, such meaningful conversation. Again, these are great opportunities to help our patients, their families, and even help ourselves. Because again, this prompts us to think about our own values and quality and things such as that. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for listening in today to Palliative Matters. We look forward to the next time we can join together and have another conversation. Have a wonderful day. Mm -hmm.